All right, I want to invite you to take the Bible that you brought with you or the Bible that's there in the pew and open up to 2 John because this week and next we're going to be studying two of the shortest letters in the New Testament, 2 John and 3 John. In total, John's second and third letters each contain less than 300 Greek words. They're really short. And they're short, certainly, if you compare them to the other letters in the New Testament that we're looked, used to looking at, especially Paul's. But what I want you to know is, in fact, while they're shorter to, compared to the letters in the New Testament, for their time, back in the ancient world, these were actually, the second and third John are more reflective of the normal length of a personal letter. They would have fit nicely, perfectly on a standard piece of papyrus, which is what they were written on. As you're going to hear in just a moment, as you're opening up to it, second John is addressed to, from the elder to the chosen lady and her children. The title of elder was typically reserved for senior citizens in the ancient Greek world. The early church later adopted the title to also refer to those holding office or leading the church globally or regionally as the church was building and started to have some structure behind it. So this title of elder is intended to convey both authority and respect and is just another way of referring to the apostle John. But who is this chosen lady and her children? There are two possibilities here. One is it could be an actual mother and her children. The other is this could be symbolic for the church and its members. Uh, I'll let you know there's no consensus among scholars about exactly whom John is addressing in this letter. This is the kind of thing that lots of ink gets spilled over. Uh, I will tell you that from my money, in reading other writings of John, the Gospel of John or the Book of Revelation, you'll notice that John, speak, John frequently speaks of the church as the bride of Christ, speaks in this, in this kind of language. So I think that John is using a metaphor here as a way of speaking to the local churches, to us. And particularly in his context, this is written much later, the church is starting to experience some persecution, so it would have been advantageous to be a little bit more nondescript in terms of who you were referring to in writing this correspondence. So, with this introduction, as you have 2 John in front of you, I want us to hear what John has to say to us as the church. And one final word, is we're, it's going to go real quick as we read it, but we're bound to notice how this short letter echoes a number of themes from John's first letter, which we were looking at the last couple of weeks. Today, though, I want to direct our attention towards the, what I think is the predominant focus of his writing. We're going to read the first six verses, and then I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles open as we'll come back to the rest later on. But let's hear the beginning of this letter. It reads, The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and in love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And, and now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you want to guess at the predominant theme that I'm, I'm, I'm addressing, you only have to read these first six verses and notice how many times John pairs truth and love together. Truth and love are the focus of this very brief letter. And it's a, that pairing is not just in John. It comes up in Paul and other places in the scriptures. And it begs the question for us, what does it mean to love someone as John writes it here, in the truth. 
What does it look like to, as John puts it, to walk in the truth and to walk in love? And I, and I think this sermon could not come at a more appropriate time. John's reflections could not be more um, vital for us as we as a church, as a nation, as the children of God together, increasingly find ourselves leveraging one at the expense of the other. Truth or love. Love or truth. Some of us are all about truth. Some of us are all about truth. We speak our mind. We're passionate about what we believe. We've done our homework. We can cite our sources. Quoting chapter and verse, we hold others accountable to the truth. We live by the book, and we expect everyone else to as well. Telling the truth is what matters the most. And if the truth offends you, well, that's your problem. We're just being honest. Some of us are all about the truth, but we're often short on love. As John makes clear here, truth is about much more than in what we believe. Truth is more than an abstract set of facts or propositions. Truth is equally about how we live out, how we practice our beliefs. Not just how we speak the truth, but how we walk in it. Right belief and wrong action communicate something false rather than something true. If we don't live what we profess to believe, then we are living a lie. For the truth of what we really believe is reflected in how we live. To make this a little closer to home, whacking someone on the head with your Bible or inundating a person with scripture verses Berating or arguing someone into the kingdom misrepresents the gospel more than it does reveal the truth of the gospel. We can tell ourselves or the other person all we want, that we're just being honest. We're just telling the truth. We're just looking out for them. But the fact is, truth without love is not caring about the other person. Truth without love is being self-protective making ourselves more secure, more self-justified at the expense of the other person. And John insists the truth of the gospel includes the love of the gospel. Truth expresses compassion. Truth extends care. Truth reflects humility and respect. Truth and love belong together. Some of us are all about truth, but some of us are all about love. Some of us are all about love. We want everyone to just get along, you know? We're concerned about how others feel. We seek to avoid conflict. We pursue peace at any price just so long as everyone is happy. We tell ourselves the best conversations are where we just focus on the positive, where what we can all agree on. And if we can't agree, then just don't bring up those topics. Live and let live. You have your beliefs, I have mine. We'll leave it at that. Some of us are all about love and blanket affirmations are what matter the most. Loving another person then becomes inseparable from agreeing with whatever they choose to do or not to do. It's not my place to speak up. Even when I think you might be making a mistake, it's not my place to speak up. Even if I believe you're doing something wrong, I just want to love you. Some of us are all about love, but we're often short on the truth. However, John stresses for us, love is more than mere sentimentalism, wanting everyone to feel good. Love is not simply blind acceptance of anything and everything. 
Love, as John describes it, is a commitment to walk in a particular direction, not to do whatever we want, but to be mindful and considerate of others, even to the point of sacrificing our desires for the needs of a larger whole. John puts it this way. He writes, love is walking in obedience to his commands, God's commands. The general reference here, as you probably can guess, is to the law of God, the specific, the Ten Commandments. But here's the thing, and I don't think we often think about the law, God's Ten Commandments this way. God's top ten, God's rules for life, aren't how we love God as much as they are how we enter into the fullness of God's love, the love that God desires for us to experience with each other. Another way of saying this is we don't make God happy by living truthfully according to his designs and specifications. He creates those designs and specifications so that we can enter into his joy, the fullness of the love that he's created to us, for us to experience, and, and through following the truth to share with each other. It's not like all of a sudden when we live truthfully or follow the law that God suddenly goes, oh, I almost forgot my own rules. Oh, gosh, thank you so much for reminding me. God knows he creates them for our benefit to experience the fullness of his love. If this is too abstract, think of it as a parent. As parents, we set boundaries for our kids. We teach lessons. We specifically try to teach them lessons, rules for life. And when a child learns those rules, those boundaries, those lessons, follows them, it isn't for the sake of us as parents. In teaching and telling the truth to our children, we're trying to set them up and equip them to experience real love. We're trying to give them the rules for life, the boundaries, so that they can experience vocational fulfillment, so that they can love what they do rather than just have a job, so that they can engage true friendship, true friendship where they share life with another person, with other people, rather than just have acquaintances. We're trying to help them to engage the world rather than to be afraid of it, to live with their fellow man rather than to be, again, distant from their fellow man. In the rules, in the boundaries that we set, we're trying to teach our children to give them the ability to enter into real love as God gives it to us rather than the kind of love we buy, the kind of love we bargain for, the kind of love we even steal. Another way to think of this is, and maybe it's not even something we have to think of, it's something we have to reflect on, is imagine loving your children without telling the truth. And I say we don't have to think about it, we just have to reflect on it because more and more that's what parenting is becoming. That we love our children, but we don't always tell them the truth. And there are many examples that I could give you, but the one that I'll give you that might shock you a little bit is, and it's becoming more and more very, very fashionable to say and to, to tell our children is that you can be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever you put your mind up to be, to make your mind up to, and decide to be. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie. That's a lie that we tell our children. The truth is you can't be whatever you want to be. I could get, think of many examples, but I'll give you one. I'd love to be a professional basketball player. <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. I can put my mind to it, I can practice, I could get, I am not gonna be a professional, the, the qualifications are not there. God did not genetically set me up to be a basketball player. And that's the point. We tell our children, you can be whatever you want to be. The truth is not, you can be whatever you want to be. The truth is, you can be whatever God wants you to be. You are to be whoever God calls you to be. And when we tell our children, you can be whatever you wanna be, when we don't tell the truth to our children, 
you know, you know, I, I, I want to be a singer, and I sing, and I'm off key, and I'm flat, and I can't carry a note, and I'm, and oh my gosh, oh wonderful, you're a great singer, you're so, oh, sing for everybody. And I'm just surrounded by this, well, I'm just a virtuoso, I'm a, I have an amazing voice. And then I go out into the world, and I'm like, all right, everybody, let me give you a song, let me drop a song on you. And I open my mouth, and everyone else's mouth drops open, and their eyes are like this. What? I thought I was a singer. When we lie to our children, when we love them but don't tell them the truth, what happens? What are we experiencing? Our children become self-centered. Our children think that the truth is whatever they decide to make it. Our children become ill-equipped, disoriented, and overwhelmed. Why is it that so many of our children used to be, go through high school, go to college, go off and start your life, and yet you and I know more and more children are graduating high school, going to college, maybe, finishing college, maybe, and then ultimately coming back and living at home. Now, some of this may be an economic reality, but some of it is also a lack of maturity. Because at the end of the day, if home is not about any kind of boundaries or rules or not the, re the reality of the world, home's awesome. That's where I want to stay. I don't want to go out there. Speaking with love without truth makes our children disoriented, overwhelmed by the reality that is before them. And it's not just our children hiding, neglecting, or shading truth in our communication with each other. If we hide, if we neglect, or we shade the truth, we're not being loving to the other person. We need to hear that. We're lying to that person. The strength of our love for others is measured by how truthfully we are willing to be with that person, how much we care enough to confront. Hear me carefully. How much we care enough to confront. Not attack, not condemn, but to confront, to face the truth, not apart from them, but with them. I've been pastoring now for a while, and I've served many different churches, and this isn't exclusive to any one community, but I am disappointed and I am shocked at times when there are things happening within the life of our community, within marriages, within families, and all of a sudden everything blows up, all of a sudden everything falls apart, and suddenly people in the community are like, oh yeah, I, I kind of sensed something was going on, yeah, I sensed there was a, I sensed they were having trouble, I sensed that this was going to happen. And then when I go, well, did you talk to him? Did you say anything? Oh, no. no. <laughs> who am I? I mean, I, I thought, I mean, I wouldn't, who am I to say anything? Is that being loving? Is it loving to look the other way? Is it loving to just basically, you know, act like it doesn't exist? Looking the other way when we sense, when we explicitly know someone is harming themselves or doing wrong by another person, playing along when the emperor has no clothes, when everyone else sees there's a problem, an obstacle, a conflict, when everyone else sees it enough to talk behind that person's back, but not to that person's face, Choosing not to speak up denies the love of the gospel, my friends, rather than represents it. And we can justify our silence all we want. We can justify our silence all we want under the guise of avoiding ill will or bad blood or keeping the peace, of being merciful, of protecting the other person. But the fact is, love without the truth, falsity, evasion, fairy tales, is not preserving the other person's feelings. It's making ourselves feel better. Love without truth is love that is afraid. Afraid of being uncomfortable. Afraid of carrying someone else's pain. Afraid of being rejected. And love without truth is not perfect love, therefore. 
It's self-preservation. John makes it clear love must always begin with the truth. John, in fact, assures us the perfect love of the gospel faces the truth. On the cross, Jesus dares to confront our brokenness. He chooses to carry our suffering. He's willing to be rejected when we can't handle the truth. On the cross, this is why John wrote in his first letter, perfect love casts out fear. Our fear. Love faces the truth. Love shines the light. It's willing to speak the hard word, to have the difficult conversation, even as it sticks around and sits in the dark with the other person. Love reflects not distance or separation in the face of challenges, but actively pursues even greater closeness and intimacy in the midst of those challenges. It's true that telling the truth may lead to conflict or upset feelings. Upset feelings on our part or the other person. But genuine love comes from facing reality, even as it promises to remain committed to working through the difficulties and being a part of the solution. I really think, my friends, it's a reflection of the brokenness of our world that we can't reconcile truth and love. It's the aftershock of sin that convinces us we can either have love or truth, but not both. I was... Uh, I didn't share this in the last service. I went to a play this weekend with my daughter, um, which was quite thought-provoking, uh, at the Amundsen Theater, and afterwards they had a conversation with uh, a couple of the actors from the play, and this is a play that definitely got you thinking. It definitely confronted truth and love. And uh, there were some good questions and some not-so-good questions, they were about to wrap it up, and one man was very, very insistent about, hey, I, I want the final question. And he identified himself... Um, as a, a gay man, he identified himself as a very successful, well-made man and then proceeded to basically rip apart the show and all this different stuff. And immediately, everyone there like turned on him. Turned on him while he was trying to express where he was coming from. And he wasn't expressing it very, very well. He was not being very, very loving. He, but he was trying to express what he perceived as true and truth was met with a lack of love. It got actually so bad at one point where he was raising his voice and basically referencing how this play was propaganda and it contributed to the shootings that just happened in Orlando. And a person didn't say this out loud. They literally came up to his face and they said, well, it's too bad they didn't get you. I kid you not. I was sitting there going, oh my God. <laughs> this is where we are, man. This is, this is, this is what's happening. This is where we are. We, we believe we can either have truth or we can have love. And that was a, just a great example of just the, the, the mess that we're in right now and how desperately we need to hear what John has to say because John's major purpose in writing is to demonstrate how love and truth are designed to support and complement one another as only good friends can. Truth and love belong together. They are friends, not enemies. And love and truth, what, why John can say this, why this is consistent throughout the Bible, is love and truth are possible together because we worship a God of truth and love. Love comes to us through Christ. Christ is the perfect embodiment of the truth of God. This is to say God knows the way things really are and he wraps his knowledge in love and brings it to us truthfully through his son. Think about it. The God who comes to us in Jesus Christ reveals the truth about who we are reveals the truth that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we are addicted to ourselves and yet never fully satisfied. 
That we desire to be in relationship with each other, but inevitably we want to be in relationship with each other on our terms rather than theirs. That we complain about things all the time, but we never take responsibility, or at least not as much responsibility as the other guy. Because really, it's their fault, not mine. We're always looking for God when we want a handout or a hand up. We believe in God when we get what we want when we want it, but we discard God when life is good, when all is well, and we forsake God when God doesn't live up to our standards, never mind living up to his. The God who comes to us in Jesus Christ reveals the truth about who we are. We are sinful, we are broken, even as he reveals the love, his love that comes with this truth. That yes, we are sinful, but nonetheless, you and I, all of us, are beloved. Even though we don't have the time of day for this God, this God has everlasting life in mind for us. The truth that we were created for more, we were created to be more, that we were created to experience more, that we were created to share more, comes from this God. That truth with the love that purposes to embrace us as we are, but not leave us there. This love that seeks to take us and make us and form us into who we were created to be together. That's the gospel. That's truth and love inseparably, perfectly bound together. John reflects this truth and love to this community to whom he's writing. You'll notice in those verses we started with, he lovingly encourages them in what they know, in how they are living. And then he lovingly confronts them about what is not true, where they need to live differently, to set boundaries, to say no. And those are the verses we didn't read. If you have your Bibles open, you can glance at them. And as you glance at verses 7 and onward, you're going to notice something. That all of a sudden, John starts to draw some pretty explicit lines in the sand. He literally, if you're looking at it, tells those whom he's writing to to close their doors to not take into their houses or welcome certain people. And now I want to address that because in the midst of everything else I've said that John is saying, this may sound not sound very loving. It might even sound contradictory to what I've told you John is trying to lay out. So let me clarify what's going on here in the particularity of this letter. John is writing at a time when it is becoming increasingly easy to travel around and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Roman Empire expanded, you might remember this from your history classes, they built better roads, massive seaways, created these market towns at various points along these massive routes that became training, trading centers not just for goods and services, but centers for ideas and teaching as well. The spread of the gospel by the early church was a result of this development. And as we know from the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, there was plenty of travel happening and the gospel was spreading across the known world. With all these teachers and missionaries on the road, they would inevitably want a place to stay on their travels. And local church congregations would be the obvious place to look. But what's starting to happen as the church is growing and expanding, and we covered this in 1 John, but just to come back to it, is in seeking sanctuary and rest with local Christians, there's this increasing possibility and reality of abuse coming from teachers and missionaries who are bringing a gospel different from the one the apostles have been preaching. So this is what we need to understand in terms of what John is writing. John is setting a boundary of hospitality, even a boundary of conversation with those He's not setting a boundary with those who are looking for open and honest dialogue. He's not cutting off conversation with those who are interested in a civil exchange of ideas. He's setting a boundary. He's drawing a line against those who are exerting authority to the point of attack and bullying in promoting and insisting upon lies. 
not just different interpretations of the gospel, but denials of the gospel, changing the very nature of what the gospel is. And John, in his first letter, and once again here, identifies what specifically is happening. He speaks of those who do come and do not acknowledge the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. And when he talks about closing doors, if this still seems harsh, remember that the churches back then didn't gather in different and separate buildings like we are. They gathered in people's homes. So he's not saying to cut off personal relationship as much as he's saying in these gatherings, you cannot let these teachers who are coming to be combative into this context of worship. Now, I want to be real careful here. I really want to nuance this for you this morning because you can really, we can take this and go the wrong way. John is not saying that we are to reject those who church differently from us. This is not an issue about personal preference. John is absolutely clear in verse 7, if you're looking at it, he's referring only to teachers who do not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is solely an issue to do with false teaching about the person of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with mode of baptism. It has nothing to do with women in ministry. It has nothing to do with gifts of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't even have anything to do with how we engage the LGBTQ community. And these are the kind of things that we're getting all wrapped up in. None of these things that I just mentioned are enough for us to withdraw hospitality because even though we may have these differences and there's a lot more I can list, we still fundamentally believe and teach the same Lord. God in the flesh in Jesus Christ lived, crucified, died, and resurrected. What John is doing here is drawing a line, setting a boundary, acknowledging a separation between not just those who actively deny the heart of the Christian faith, the incarnation, He's drawing a line, setting a boundary, acknowledging separation from those who antagonistically seek to stir up division and to divide the church. And that line is necessary to protect those who are part of the flock. John is categorical here. The people to be rebuffed are the teachers, not the followers, who are seeking to undermine the church by bringing in false teaching about the very nature of Jesus Christ. I want to delineate that for you because you could kind of take the first half and say, well, how does this line up with the second half? And I hope I've teased that out for you. It points out to us that in the midst of truth and love, there are boundaries. When someone wants to go to war, we don't go to war. When someone wants to be antagonistic, we don't, we don't, we don't engage that. We don't go, put up, go, go up for battle. We step back and say, you know what, we're not fighting. We'll, we, we separate. But outside of that extreme situation, from what John tells us here, how can we reflect truth and love to each other? And there's three things I want to point out from this letter, three things of how we can re reflect truth and love to each other. And this is the practical part for us. When we think about in our relationships and the places we exist, how we can reflect truth and love to each other, it begins first with a relationship. There has to be a relationship. Number one, to reflect truth and love, you have to have a relationship with the other person. You can't completely speak the truth. You cannot fully express love to someone you don't take the time to know. This is about the importance of taking time to listen to each other. This is about taking time to share life together. This is about experiencing something together. You cannot speak truth and express love fully to a stranger. You can't. Relationship has to come first because it's out of relationship that we gain credibility right? It comes out of being honest that we gain credibility to speak truth and to express love. It's where we receive permission 
to express truth as well as to convey love. It's out of relationship that we build trust and understanding. So as we are having this dialogue, as we are dealing with truth and love, it is not misunderstood or, 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 or it doesn't create more harm because there's a relationship that, of, of trust and understanding that, under, that, that supports kind of working through the stuff. Notice in this letter, John established these churches. John established these churches. He had relationship with them. That's his basis for speaking so truthfully and yet also being able to be perceived lovingly because he had relationship. And one thing that actually speaks to our context today but even goes back to John, and and more so this service than the last needs to hear this, especially the younger people here. Reflecting truth and love to each other requires a relationship. But please hear me. Virtual relationships don't count. Virtual relationships don't count. Beware social media, Facebook, Twitter, all the other ways in which we engage social media. Those are not modes of relationship. Those are soapboxes. Those are places where we can say, hey, I'm going to drop some knowledge. I'm going to say some truth. There's not a lot of love that's capable through social media. I know we think there is, but here's the thing that we forget. It's like we're absent-minded. I don't care what filter settings you set because they get changed all the time. You're not just sharing your truth with people that you know, but you're sharing it with people they know and people that they know and so forth. You have no relationship with them. And let me just say this to the Christian community. Please be careful, very, very careful, and stop and think before you profess, purport to speak for Jesus. Take that very, very seriously. I honestly think just for the Christian community alone, I would prefer on social media for everyone to just say, I'm not speaking for Jesus right now. I'm just speaking for me. And there's a difference. Because I guarantee you, and this includes myself, Jesus doesn't think all the things you think. Jesus doesn't believe all the things you believe. When we use social media, we need to remember that that is not the basis for relationship. And relationship requires face-to-face time. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 12. This is a little thing, but even though John didn't have Facebook or social media, I, I really find this interesting what John writes in verse 12 in this short little letter. Look what he writes here. He writes, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Even back in John's day, he realized in the midst of having a lot to say that it was more important for both truth and love to be conveyed that it would be conveyed face to face. We have this expression, be a friend or make a friend, be a, make a friend, be a friend, lead a friend to Christ. You've heard this before? Make a friend, be a friend, lead a friend to Christ. That's an ongoing relationship. When I say that truth and love being reflected in our lives is about a relationship, one last thing I have to say is that just because you had a relationship doesn't mean you have a relationship. Does that make sense? If you're not actively invested in it, if you haven't talked to that person in some time, shared life with them, been transparent, done some things together, to all of a sudden go, well, we have a history, so I get to drop some truth and some love in your, in your lap, that's not the case. The relationship always has to be built first. The second thing is speaking, reflecting truth and love to another person is about encouragement, not passing judgment. We are called, and I can take you through the Bible, it's consistent again and again, Old and New Testament, the Bible tells us again and again, we are called to encourage. 
We are called to encourage. And again and again, judgment, passing judgment is left to God. We all know this, and yet we all seem to struggle with the encouragement part, but we're really good at the passing judgment part. I used to be uh, in in, uh, customer service before I was a pastor, and those of you who've worked in that field, interacted at all, you know the the adage in in business, which is people do not have to be prompted to to criticize, right? They will let you know when they're not happy. They will let you know when you've ruined their day, their life, when you're the worst person in the world. The adage in customer service, in fact, is that for every criticism that that, that is given, it takes 10 positive experiences, compliments, to undo that criticism. What that reflects is our tendency towards being critical, criticism, and our, our struggle at times with giving compliments, with being encouraging. And what's interesting to me is that's the way of the world, but what John in many ways is trying to say through this, his first letter and his third, is that's the very spirit of the world we're not supposed to partake in. Just because that's how it is out there, we're supposed to change the world by being different, not being known like everyone else for being able to criticize, but knowing how to encourage. Building people up. Not buttering them up, building people up. You read John, you read Paul, you read Peter, the start of their letters always begins with affirmations. Not flattery, affirmations, encouragement. Because encouragement is a form of constructive criticism. It's the giving of courage. It's encouragement is this giving of courage because we haven't arrived. That's the biblical metaphor. We're on the way. It's a marathon, remember, not a sprint. And that's part of the reason why we are called not to pass judgment, by the way, why that's reserved exclusively for the Lord. Not just because it's the Lord's prerogative, but if you follow the biblical metaphor that we're on this journey that none of us have arrived, then we are continue to give courage to each other, but not pass judgment because we can't pass judgment. Because if we're all on this journey... We don't know what's come before for every person, and we don't know in any way what's coming next. The Lord passes judgment at the end, and you and I don't know when that end is. And so we leave judgment to God, and we encourage, we continue to give courage, lifting up. And encouragement isn't always just positive. Encouragement has a a, a level of, of critique to it. The best teachers, the best friends, the coaches I've had were the ones who were willing to be honest versus categorically condemning or being generically complimentary. It was the kind of person who would say, you know, Chris, that was a train wreck. Yeah, that was a face plant. Yeah, you failed there. But let's step back and see what we can learn, how we can come at this again, or try and go in a different direction. That's encouragement. That's giving courage. Intervention, my friends, is not criticism. Intervention is critique, and there's a difference. Critique always comes from the motive of restoring and building up, unlike criticism, which aims to harm and shame. Criticism will always leave a person feeling belittled and beaten down. I call criticism hit and run, right? And I've had people in my life who, when I had that face plant, when I had that train wreck, when I failed, who criticized. You suck. You're horrible. You really ought to rethink this. You're really not good at this. Man, I don't think anybody could have blown it as bad as you did. And let me tell you, that didn't give me any courage. Right? That's criticism. Critique is different. Critique, on the other hand, will leave a person feeling cared and built up. Cared for and built up. Because critique is about making the commitment, taking the time and putting in the work to continue the dialogue until there's mutual understanding and love. Notice I didn't say agreement. 
Critique doesn't mean we always have to agree with it, but at least we understand and we feel the love. Reflecting truth and love is about, always about a relationship. It's about encouragement, not passing judgment. And finally, reflecting truth and love is always about leading someone to Christ. It's always about leading someone to Christ. Make a friend, be a friend, lead a friend to Christ. Leading someone to Christ, or what we call evangelism, isn't just about getting someone to pray the prayer or meet Jesus. You know, the way I think of it is we're always leading each other to Christ. Or if you will, we're always leading each other back to Christ. Because here's the thing. We're always getting off center. We're always getting away from the truth. Remember, when we talk about truth, truth for us is personified. Truth is a person, Jesus Christ. When we ask the question, this big question of how do we know what is true, we in the Christian community, when we, when we deal with truth, Pilate, what is truth, he asks Jesus. That answer of what is truth for us, there's no secret key. It's not out there. Truth is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's the declaration of the Bible. When you ask yourself, what is truth? Truth is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Our emotions and our opinions are not biblical truth. Our selected verses of scripture that we memorize or throw out are not the whole of biblical truth. The Bible declares if you want to know what is true, what truth is, then you look to the person, the witness, the example of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I mean this literally. I mean if we are wrestling with truth, it means to pay attention to how did Jesus live? How did Jesus speak? How did Jesus act? How did Jesus walk? That is what truth looks like. That is truth. And when you read the letters, that's what John, Peter, and Paul are continuing to say, is follow Christ because that's truth. It's asking, in essence, it's understanding that how everything about this book, the truth of, the, of God's word, our lens, our filter, our interpretive grid on what is true comes through the person and witness, the example of Jesus Christ. So when you're trying to speak the truth into another person's life, maybe another way to think of it is to speak with that person and ask, where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus in this? What would Jesus do in this situation? What did Jesus do? How would Jesus face this? How would Jesus live your life? And as I'm framing it this way for you, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are going, that is ridiculous. That's ridiculous because that's Jesus and I'm not Jesus. Get ready. That's Jesus, I'm not Jesus is the biggest lie of all. Because then you don't understand the gospel. The shocking earth-shattering, life-changing gospel, which declares that in matters of truth, the truth is not out there. The truth is in us. The truth sets us free because Christ lives in us. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. The truth is not out there to be discovered. The truth is in here to be unleashed. Christ is living in us, being with us, shaping us. So when you say, well, I can't look to Jesus. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus, because I'm not Jesus. Yes, you are. You are becoming Christ. The truth is changing you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, this suddenly shifts how we think about truth. We don't preserve the truth as if it's, again, out there. The truth preserves us. We don't need to defend the truth as if somehow it's going to get taken or twisted or changed. No, we don't need to defend or guard the truth because the truth defends and guards us. 
And that's why when I'm saying to you, finally, when we talk about reflecting truth and love, in matters of truth, we're always leading someone to Christ. It's always about bringing them back to Jesus. And here's the thing. In leading someone to Jesus, love always follows. Love always follows. It can't help but follow because we're following Jesus. Great biblical example of this. Again, great way of thinking about this. When I say, when you want to know what's true, look at Jesus. You remember this story from the Gospel of John. Surprise, surprise. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Okay, the woman caught in adultery. You remember this story. I'm hoping it's coming to you. She's caught in adultery. Let's make no mistake. The truth is, this is a sin. This is wrong. But you remember in this story, those who are focused on the truth are so focused on where she fell short that they have rocks in their hands, that they are ready to pass judgment. They are ready to kill her. And when they encounter Christ, truth, Jesus suddenly brings them to a place of self-examination. You remember this, right? Jesus does, says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And this is a beautiful response by Jesus because it brings something else out. The minute that we want to start, we want other people to face the truth, the minute we want to drop truth in someone else's lap, facing the truth begins with facing it in ourselves. Where are you with Christ? Where is Christ, the truth of Christ, at work in your life? Now, it doesn't stop here because you know that when Jesus asks this question, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, you know what happens next? There are no stone throwers, just a big pile of rocks. It doesn't stop there. And this part's also very instructive for all of us. Remember what happens? Jesus then turns to this woman and says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. Pay attention. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go on your way. From now on, sin no more. Truth and love, perfectly, beautifully reflected. They're both there. Christ exhibits both. We, the hard part, I think, with this whole truth and love thing is whether we're really passionate about truth or we're really on fire with love, we all confront this reality, which is no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want it, we cannot make someone believe or follow the truth of Jesus. We cannot make someone believe or accept the love that is Christ. You can't. And you may have spent your life trying to beat someone over the head with your Bible or love bomb them to death. But the reality is we cannot make someone believe or follow the truth that is Christ or accept the love that is Jesus. And the reality is that loop can only be closed by the Holy Spirit. We are simply called to build relationship, to encourage, to lead people to Christ. But it's Jesus who closes that loop. We can't make someone believe or follow the truth of Christ or accept the love that is Christ, but our love for Jesus and for that other person and the truth of that love for Christ expressed to that other person can make it hard for them to ignore the truth and love of Jesus Christ. The world we live in right now, my God, the political chaos, all the other stuff that's going on, what would our witness and our reputation as the church look like? What would our witness and our reputation as the church look like? If instead of the judgmental piety, we hold over those who don't believe as we do. What if instead of that judgmental piety, we hold over those who don't believe as we do? What if instead we committed to actually loving, defending, protecting, and even standing up with those with whom we disagree? 
Did you hear what I just said? I didn't say to stand up and say, it doesn't matter, it's all good, we're all on the same page, who cares what you believe? What, how striking would it be if we actually loved, if we said we are going to defend, we are going to protect, we are going to stand up with those with whom we disagree? How would that change our reputation? How would that change the gospel that we are purporting to represent? How would our conversations change if instead of venting from our social media soapboxes, which is easy, it's so easy, it's so tempting, what if instead of venting from our social media soapboxes, what if instead of sending people the latest link to some article or the latest post so we can say, you see, that's what I believe, what if instead we invited those with whom we disagree into the hospitality of our homes and offered them encouragement Encouragement, dared to enter into civil, non-defensive, maybe even confessional conversations where we honestly named our fears, our reservations, and our struggles along with our faith. I think it would change a lot. I think people would start to see less of the church and more of Jesus. And at the end of the day, that's really what we want the world to see. Not the church, not us, but Jesus. Reflecting truth and love to each other is about a relationship. It's always about a relationship that has to be there. It's about offering encouragement, not passing judgment, and it's about leading someone to Christ. The reality is, even with all these things, we will at times draw opposition. We'll face opposition. People who will be hostile. But if people are going to oppose us, Let's make sure as far as it depends on us that we engage those who oppose us with the same truth and with the same love that Jesus Christ did. Because we can't be truthful without love. The absence of love is the rejection of the truth of Christ. It's to move outside of Christ, the source of all truth. It's to move outside of what all good relationships are based on. As John describes it in the beginning of his letter, it's to move outside of relationships of grace, mercy, and peace. We cannot be truthful without love, but love is shallow when truth is ignored or simply becomes relative. Withholding or ignoring the truth is the withholding of our love for the other person. People who avoid conflict deny themselves and the other person the depth of truth and love God intends for us to experience in our relationships with him and with each other. We're going to come to this table once again in just a few moments, and when you, we do, I want you to think about this. When it comes to truth and love, despite how the saying goes, when it comes to truth and love, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can have our cake and eat it too, so long as we realize the cake is not of our own making and it's meant to be shared. For the cake is the body of Christ, broken and given in acknowledgement of the reality of our mutual sin, as well as the assurance of our gracious forgiveness together. In Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, we experience love and truth perfectly and inseparably bound together. And as we yield our lives and follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will know the truth. And the truth will set us free, free to experience, free to practice, free to develop a love which is obedient to God, unswerving in its dedication to the well-being of others, and able to receive from others as well as give. Because, beloved, the love we practice and receive sustains the truth by which we live.
It is the reinforcement of Christ within us. Amen.